0: And Lord, the only way that we can be a blessing in your eyes is through your blessing to us. We're absolutely dependent upon you for everything, for our breath, for our mind, for our actions. And Lord, it's through your spirit moving through us that gives us the power to live lives that are pleasing and worthy of the calling that you have given to us. We give you thanks and we give you praise this day for who you are, for what you have done. And through Christ our Lord, who gives us all things, we give you thanks. Amen. Please be seated. So. Uh, way back, as a uh, Ford Observer team mem- member, I was always in the visual range of the v- business, business end of everything that was, uh, was blowing up. And uh, while I was in the Army, I was never in a, a war zone. Nevertheless, uh, operations uh, with and around lethal weapons will sometimes get people hurt. In fact, in 1974, I had a a howitzer projectile land about 100 meters from my open position, and that caused a bit of a ruckus, a similar ruckus to uh, what the elders experienced a couple weeks ago. It felt like a grenade went off and uh, and the wall went down, so we all know what that feels like. But I can can hardly begin to understand uh, what it felt like, on December the 5th in 2001. That was just not even 90 days after uh, 9-11. We sent about 100 special forces, folks, over to um, Afghanistan to help the Afghanis overthrow the Taliban. But on that day, a, uh, an airstrike that was meant for the, uh, the Taliban positions hit a battalion command post occupied by uh, American forces, uh, Hamid Karzai, the future president, and um, it was a disaster. Three Americans were killed, 10 Afghanis, and another 40 people were wounded. What had happened was a B-52 bomber dropped a 2,000-pound satellite-guided bomb uh, onto their position. Pentagon officials later explained why. It was that the, the combat controller who set the coordinates for the attack uh, changed the batteries on his GPS. And uh, what that did was it reset the coordinates to his own position. And, uh, and uh, it, it caused a, a disaster. Now, how could he make such a mistake? Uh, Well, uh, von Clausewitz, who if you're in the military, certainly in the officer corps, you've uh, read him. If if not, he's a fellow who wrote a book entitled On War. And he says this, everything uh, is very simple in war. But the simplest thing is difficult. These difficulties accumulate and produce a friction which no man can imagine exactly who has not seen war. Now, later in the 1930s, the Air Corps had a real problem. They created, in preparation for what ultimately was World War II, a, a bomber and in that bomber, they, for the first time in the history of aviation, they put locks, rudder locks and aileron locks that you could release in the, uh, from the flight deck itself. And uh, so in front of uh, dignitaries and generals and political leaders of all sorts, they decided to uh, fly this bomber. Uh, so that all could see the power of the United States Army Air Corps. And, of course, it went up, and it turned sideways, and it went down. They had not released these locks, so they had no control of the rudder. They had no control of the ailerons. And so what happened was the, the Army Air Corps said, listen, When things are new or when things are tense, as in uh, von Clausewitz, what we need to do is is come up with a checklist. And so uh, they did. And instead of the mind having to remember everything, and if you've ever been in a stressful situation, you know you don't remember anything. You're standing and staring and thinking, what am I supposed to do now? Well, if you have a little checklist, you, you just pre-decide that you're going to look at the checklist. You look at the checklist, they take it out of the person's mind, they put it onto paper, and then like a recipe, a checklist consists of a written step-by-step uh, procedures that ensured that you did what you were supposed to do, your duties in the correct way and in the right order. And so injuries in, in training and in war went uh, went down significantly. But as we saw in the opening uh, stories, an unused checklist leads to uh, danger. So to avoid danger in our spiritual lives and to increase peace, I mean we have to have a a life checklist. Uh, so to speak, or to think of it another way, standards by which to live in order to know what is pleasing to God. Because if you look at the newspaper, you will not find those answers. They're not out there. Uh, They change, and now it's changing so rapidly, things are even uh, difficult to keep up with for those who are attempting to do that. There's standards for success in spirituality. When I say success, I don't mean uh, success like financial success. What I mean is in pleasing uh, the Lord. And, And that is we need something that understands us, you and me, in such a way that it meets our needs to get through this life in a manner that's worthy of our calling. In our text today, Paul reaches out to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, and he has this striking statement. Uh, We had gone through uh, recently uh, some very uh, difficult uh, pieces of text where it's just the world is going nowhere fast. And it's getting there in a violent, in a demeaning, in a disrespectful way. Uh, way, but now he says, As for you, essentially he says, train well, run well, finish well, but you cannot do it alone. Um, when you're under pressure when things are coming down around you, and remember that was the context that Second Timothy was written in. Timothy was being alerted by Paul that Nero is coming essentially. Persecution is coming. You have to understand how to get through well. And all these standards that he was giving to Timothy, we also need. And uh, the standards are held really in the word of God and scripture. Some of you might say, John, that's the the word of God is scripture. That's the, the same thing. Well, no, it's not at least not in the classical uh, sense. From antiquity, the Word of God is Jesus Christ incarnate. The Scripture is the Word of God written. And we have to have both of these. We have to have both of these in our lives. Romans uh, 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed, And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So we learn that it takes an incarnational ministry, but that incarnational ministry, i.e. someone has to go, someone has to minister, but that ministry must be bounded by and guided by the word of God written. We see both of these ideas here in our text, 2 Timothy three, fourteen through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, but as for you, that's how he begins this uh, section. Paul couldn't have written a greater uh, contrast in, the, uh, in this transition by saying that. Unlike the false teachers and unlike the evils that he had been speaking of, Timothy was uh, different. So he writes, continue in the things that you have learned. So the, the scriptures came to Timothy from people that he knew and that he loved. Of course, in Timothy's case, it was Eunice and Lois, his grandmother. And they were the, the channels through which he was taught the word of God. And since the word of God uh, would have certainly in his young life included Deuteronomy uh, 6... That's where Moses taught people how this was to happen with their children. It's important to understand that Moses never... So don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Moses, though, never intended a classroom environment for the teaching of children in that day. So don't don't hear what I'm not saying I'm not saying that that having a classroom environment is wrong I'm just saying that that wasn't his intent his intent was that when you get up in the morning you teach your children. When you have mealtime, you teach your children. When you go to bed at night, you teach your children. In other words, the teaching was to be done by the parents in the daily, ordinary activities of life. It was to be done in those moments. Because one of the most important things about it's not just quality, in terms of the time that you spend with your children. That's great if it is quality. I, I, that's wonderful. But it also has to have quantity. And one might argue that quality outweighs quantity. And maybe that's true. But I tell you what. When the questions arise in the child's mind. And if you're not there. How will they ask? Lots of questions like that are fleeting. But that was an important thing. understand what these teachable moments are. embrace them and give them to your children. The second factor here is that Timothy learned this he learned it very early from childhood you learn uh, this. So childhood is a just a beautiful time for children to learn the, the scripture I I watched yesterday with a little bit of wonder and also a little bit of... Envy, I suppose, as these little children either watched the the puppets and were just enthralled, or the colors of the book and were enthralled with this. And that's such a beautiful time to where they they're just soaking uh, this in. I want to also join in with uh, Ron here and and giving a shout out to Kim on. Uh, for your your work, and of course, the eighty volunteers that it uh, that it took, and of course, it would have happened too uh, just to double down with Ron uh, for what uh, Mike, if you, Mike spent uh, every day here until we could come back into this uh, building, and that's just a wonderful thing. Timothy not only knew the truth of the scriptures, but he was also certain of their uh, validity. And he didn't just believe them from an academic point of view. We err, uh, and we err badly when we think that the Scripture is given to us so that we learn uh, something just intellectually. That's not what they're for at all. In fact, they are to give us a life, a way of living. And Timothy was the product of that, uh, the power of God's Word. Scripture had changed him. It had shaped him. It had forged him into the man of God that he was. And third, and some of this stuff is, this is all in the shadow of what the Apostle Paul is going to say about Scripture, about the written Word of, of God, but we cannot, uh, we cannot miss it. We can't Uh, forget that even though it's in the shadow of that it's very real because Timothy had a very deep and personal relationship with the apostle Paul and that's who he learned these truths from he lived with him they worked together they ate together they did what Essentially, Moses had said, when you get up in the morning, when you share a meal, when you go to bed at night, you don't just simply give words, but you show and you demonstrate with your life. I believe that Paul had that directly in his mind when he was thinking about Timothy as his son. It wasn't simply that, hey, I'm the one who led you to Christ, therefore you're my son. I think it's because they lived and they worked and they breathed in and out the word of God in such a way that when Timothy looked at Paul, he saw a consistent life from the word of God. The humanity of the people in Timothy's life taught him. Timothy was not prepared with the You know, do as I say, not as I do. Timothy watched, and it was consistent, and there was a power there. And the question that we have to ask, the question I have to ask myself, is can those that we teach, can those that I teach say the same about me? Can they say the same about you? In other words, is what you say, is that lived out in your life or not? Are we content with living our faith out in the way that we do? Do we even think about it? Is, is there an intentional element in, in how we live out our faith? Are we satisfied with those we influence to become, at least in some ways, like us? (laughs) Do we really want someone to be like us, like you, like me? Is that the life that we're living? It's a sobering reminder that, oh, by the way, you are a leader. You are leading someone. Someone looks up to you. Someone emulates you. Someone is doing what you do, not what you say. We are all in a situation where people, uh, we have have some influence. And we have to do a couple of things. One is we have to teach Scripture formally. We do. Uh, But second, we also have to teach Scripture with our lives. There is... There are very few things that are more damaging than to be church here and a whole nother person out there. Uh, that is, that, that kind of life is, uh, yeah, someone's watching. And the validity of what we teach is only, it's only. It's only validated to the other person by by how you see them live. And we have to ask, are they seeing the Lord's ongoing grace in our lives? I I wanted to stop there for just a minute, because the next thing that Paul says is so powerful that we forget this part. We go straight to this, where he moves to this, That remarkable statement about Scripture. But we have to understand that Paul is not pivoting. Paul is not going from one subject to another subject. He's explaining to Timothy that in this present context of persecution and the coming difficulties, how you can survive and how you can prosper in an evil age. Which, by the way, we live in now, and in, it was in that context that Paul is reminding Timothy of the reliability and the profitability of the Scriptures. See, Timothy, you already know this, right? You've you've got this. You you need this standard. You need this checklist, and it's not a checklist to make sure that, oh, I did this and I did this. That's not the kind of checklist I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the checklist that leads a person to living a life worthy of their calling. The list of those, and I I won't name names, but I just invite you to look it up on the internet. But the list of those who have proclaimed Christ and then abandoned Him is long and disappointing. Somewhere along the way, I guarantee it. They said, ah, "I don't need it. I don't need those standards. I don't need this checklist. I don't need." You know what? <laughs> As the secularist would uh, say. I can sing better than Elvis. Bet you guys didn't know that. I'm also smarter than Einstein. You didn't know that either? Well, they're both dead. (laughs) Elvis can't sing at all. Einstein's not doing a lot of thinking, so I figure I've got... See, you see, this is the way the secular mind works. It doesn't matter what was written 2,000 years ago. They're all dead and gone. The only thing that matters right now is what I think. What I think is the only thing that's important. That's the way the secular mind works. It's it's about... It's the centrality of uh, me. And yet the Apostle Paul is saying, no those things remain true. They remain true. And when you fail to abide by the word of God, as we've seen, danger is close. So Paul says this, all scripture is God breathed. Wow. I mean, since it comes from God, who is reliable, who is trustworthy, and the scripture is, comes from God, therefore the Scripture is trustworthy. You may be uh, wondering if you can trust the Word of God in today's world. Yes, yes, you can. God is reliable. Scripture is reliable. Listen, the Scriptures are not the result of some religious or philosophical genius in people. That's not where it comes from. The Bible, as it's been said, is not the kind of book we would write if we could write. It's an amazing, an amazing uh, book, and it's imparted to us without error through the men, the authors, I should say, who wrote it. And those words are from the Creator God. And again, while some was dictated, like the the Ten Commandments, for the most part, it was as the Spirit of God moved through the authors, He used their personality, their style, but the final product, as Hodge wrote, is that what they said, God said. Bottom line is, Scriptures are trustworthy. He breathed them out. And of course, I mean, the Bible has always had critics. In fact, uh, Christianity at large has often missed the strategic war by fighting tactical battles. The, the sec- secularists, they have no such problem. They knew from the get-go that the issue was not the issues in the Bible, which we get wound up about, but it was the Bible itself. And so they've been attacking directly the Word of God written for hundreds of years. undermining Because they know if they can undermine the Word of God or your belief in the Word of God, they can undermine you. Because that's what we have. But we fight about the issues contained in the Word of God. And they're like... <laughs> We kick that post out, and the whole thing collapses. And you know what? When I see a lot of kids go off to college, that's what I see. I see it fall right down. And it's just so disheartening and so difficult. But anyway, the Bible has always had critics. And one of the reasons why, why, of course, why, the Bible confronts us with our sin. Nobody wants to be confronted. Nobody wants to be confronted with their sin. No. And so what's the easiest thing to do if you're confronted with your sin or if you're afraid you might be confronted with your sin and you don't have an answer? Well, you attack. You attack. Isn't that what we see in political discourse today? Actually, it's not even just in political discourse. It's, it's moving throughout our uh, society as a whole, is that when you're losing an argument, you don't deal with the issues. You don't need to go do more research. You don't need to buttress your argument. You just start calling names. You're this, and you're that, and you're the other thing. Therefore, I'm better than you, and smarter than you, and whatever else I am than you. Now... Real quickly here to, to, for a greater understanding, we've got to address two quick questions. First, what did Paul mean when he said all Scripture? That So the word translated in Scripture is, is used 51 times in the New Testament. And it always refers to either some part of the Bible or the Bible as a, a whole. And when I say Bible, most of the time, that's actually a reference to the Old Testament or what we might call the Hebrew uh, scriptures. But sometimes it's used as a New Testament. Like Peter in 2 Peter 3.16, he refers to Paul's letters as scripture. So this phrase, sacred writings in verse 15, is a clear reference to the Hebrew scriptures, to the Old Testament. Because Timothy wouldn't had as a child any New Testament scriptures because they didn't exist. So the, the word there is graphi. That's the word that they use. It's uh, the word to write in a plural form, and that's when they said that, it meant the Old Testament uh, scriptures. And while some scholars here, they get all hot and bothered with this uh, text, and they say, that's all that's being referenced here is the Old Testament. So that's what we need to cling to is the Old Testament, at least as it relates to what Paul has to say. But Paul doesn't use that. In the parallel passage, okay, so in 15, he said the sacred writings, but he says all Scripture in 16, okay? He doesn't say... uh, sacred writings, what he says is the, the graph instead of the graphi. It's the singular, and that slight difference, while it may not mean much to us, what it meant was that Paul understood that the New Testament, the writings that were now occurring, were part of the canon and were inspired. Actually, we, we use the word inspired uh, to breathe in, when actually the text says that this they were breathed out. But we don't have a good word. We don't want to say <laughs> we don't want to say that word because it means something else in English. I, I expired. So we don't, we don't want we don't want to say that right. But it's God breathed. It's breathed out. And the fact that the Bible is profitable uh, for teaching. Uh, implies that it's necessary to study. Okay, so we need to study it, and we do that in order to know the living God. We need to expose ourselves to every opportunity that we can to hear either a good uh, expositional writing, uh, teaching, or a preaching. And not only instruction, but it's good for reproof. Now, reproving means to expose. I mean literally that's what it means it's the lawyer in the court exposing what actually happened this is what this is what happened and it's refuting the opponent who says it didn't happen and so the bible is very good at exposing our sin then it doesn't stop there thankfully it's also good for helpful for uh, correction. The word just doesn't leave. Then this is where we leave so many people so often. Is we say sinner, 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 uh, sinner, and then the person is left. Where do I go from here? Everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I think is wrong. What do I do? It's also helpful for correction. It says this doesn't point out where we're wrong. It tells us how to get right with others, with uh, ourselves. Uh, also uh, with God. And then finally, it's useful in training in righteousness. So once we're back on the path, uh, essentially with the, we learn something, the Holy Spirit brings something in our life, we are, we are reconciled with that as we train in righteousness. The word here is actually where we get our word pedagogy from. It's, it means that you're in a child's school. Uh, it's how you teach a child. And so the Lord is training us as uh, from children and up how to live righteous lives. And ultimately, what is all this for? It is to be equipped for every uh, good work. And uh, equipped means that you're furnished, you're supplied, you have the adequate resources to ministers, minister to others. It's not just theory. It is practice. So my prayer has been, remains that each person, uh, not just in this church, but every peop- person that I come in contact with will become mature in Christ through the word of God, understanding the word of God incarnate and what that means and the word of God Written, that it transforms us, it keeps us from that downhill uh, slide. And I began this message with stories about uh, war or things connected to war, and and I connected that notion to uh, that the only way that we can navigate this life and understand how to live is to understand scripture and teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. One of the most challenging things for me to remember is that we are at war. So, I mean, during the early part, so if we go back to 2001, and in my office, if you go in my office, you'll see that I have a few pictures, and one of the pictures I've had for a very long time, and that picture was to remind me that we were at war because when you're sitting in garrison you're sitting you know on the base i mean even if you're in the aor and you're you're sitting in certain places it doesn't look or feel like war so i have that to remind me of course after my brother's only son joshua was was shot down and killed in iraq i didn't need any more reminders i I'm daily reminded in my own mind. I still have the pictures, though, and I keep them there. Somehow, I think that for me, and perhaps for you, you don't feel like you're at war. You don't realize, maybe, that you're in danger Maybe you need a picture to understand and comprehend the threat that comes to us from unseen things. And it's God's word that warns us about this. Otherwise, we might have no knowledge of it at all. So just a few closing thoughts, just one or two more minutes. First, understand that there is a war and that you are in it the bible is what (laughs) metaphorically speaking the bible is a sword understand that the bible is a tool an instrument that god gives to us for our protection but more than that for the advancement of the gospel even if you don't engage in this war and you try to stay out of it, you will nevertheless be impacted by it and affected by it, and you'll be more vulnerable to the evil that comes from it. God wants us to be active. He wants us to stay close to uh, Jesus. He saved us. He keeps us. And I want you to remember that the power that he gives you is greater than any power that's in this world. He equips us. We need to recognize who our enemy is. That is Satan, the highest ranked angel. And he rebelled against God. And he works by trying to convince you, what? Go back to the garden. Oh, did, did God really say that? Is that what he said? Nah, he didn't say that. The very first attack was on the word of God. And it's God's word that is supreme and is the final standard of truth. It tells us that there is a God. It tells us what he is like. It tells us what we can know about him. It tells us that when we come to a knowledge of the living God like I did, instead of being filled with joy, I was filled with terror. Why? Because I knew that I was not with him. But the story doesn't stop there. The story continues on to where you have Jesus Christ sent here in a body to give his life that we might live. And I'll guarantee you, the Bible, while we see it as metaphorical in our plane of existence, somehow, I don't think it's metaphorical in the unseen world. They feel it, and they feel it sharply. Father, we are thankful and grateful that you have given us uh, life and that you have given us a way to live. Lord, if it was just up to us, we would be going in, oh, uh, many, uh, many directions, uh, some even different directions in our own minds. And so we're, we're so grateful that you give us your word, you give us your spirit to illuminate it, and, uh, and we're just entirely indebted uh, to you for everything. And we give ourselves wholly and completely to you through Christ our Lord. Amen.